Father, that song we just sang is one of my favorites. It's true. It has much in it that comes right out of your word. It's one that if um, I get to go first, I have asked to have in my memorial that we might put focus on you. It's your son's return. Dead or alive, we get to go to be with him. And so we are excited to know you, to have a Bible in our own hands, in our own language, even in a, a translation that we can understand, to put it into practice. So help us, Father, not to be lazy. May we work hard at um, pursuing you. May we work hard at turning away from evil and at obeying your word as we read it and take it in and treasure it in our hearts. And so may this passage be the same. May you help um, the congregation and those listening online to, to understand my connection between Genesis 22 and the raising of children. Help me not to make this too abrupt, but may it be rather obvious. And we just thank you for this time and ask for your blessing on it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're looking at Genesis 22 in this series. We'll have two more messages after next week. Brian will be sharing, and you'll see in the bulletin what he's going to be covering. And then we're going to do two more messages focused on children uh, before we uh, break and go into a couple other um, special areas that I want to deal with before I get into another book study. So we're in Genesis 22 this morning, but just to do a little bit of review as we look back, a reminder that success in parenting comes from your walk with God. I think we think our kids will become something because we tell them to or because we drop them off at Sunday school. But it's your walk with God. Um, and in that regard, we, with what we were talking about last week and we're going to look at a little bit this morning, physical discipline is secondary. Hopefully it becomes more and more rare with your children. I am no way trying to encourage you to have to look for ways to spank them like a spank a day keeps the devil away or something like that. That is not what we're trying to teach. Um, it is necessary when there is foolishness, and we talked about that last week, but never necessary when it's simply childishness. When children are doing what children do, um, sometimes it's the parents that might need the spanking, but I, I shouldn't go there, um, as they overreact to rambunctious children. But we are going back to that a little bit before I go into this chapter and, and trying to remind you that using the rod has a very specific purpose. So let me share, this comes out of a, a book um, Growing Kids God's Way, actually it's a video series, a teaching series uh, by Gary and, and Ann Ezzo. Uh, and he has a section in here regarding discipline, but he says there's a great difference between cultural spanking and biblical chastisement. All right? So you want to separate those. Most of what we do, if not all, is cultural spanking. Biblical chastisement has a unique aspect coming out from scriptures. So let me compare these. Cultural spanking is something parents do to the child. Biblical chastisement is something parents do for their child. All right? When you do it to them, too often it's anger or frustration or embarrassment or something else. But spanking is always to be done for your child's sake. Another one, cultural spanking is a reaction activated by frustration. But biblical chastisement is a response activated by rebellion. And that's what you're trying to drive far away from them. Cultural spanking, number three, is used as a punishment of last resort. Biblical chastisement is not an act of punishment, but of love. 
When you see it that way, it will help you to follow through that way. Cultural spanking, number four, attempts to change outward behavior. Biblical chastisement is used to change inward attitudes of the heart. Cultural spanking, number five, is performed throughout a child's life. But biblical chastisement is nearly completed by the age of, and he says five. If you are lovingly guiding your children, that tool can go away. Uh, we had a couple children that maybe it was 15, but, <laughs> but normally it's going to be, just kidding, uh, going to be around five. Another one, cultural spanking frustrates the child. Biblical chastisement clears a child's guilty conscience. I'm thinking of having a night when we can all just gather, like a Sunday night, instead of meeting with the men, of just having parents join with all of their munchkins running around, where you can ask questions. I have gotten zero on the tear-off, so you must not have any questions, but I'm sure you do. So as we go through here, that's one that would stand out. You're after a guilty conscience. The Holy Spirit is working with you. You're not alone. And so you, you need to recognize the pursuit. Cultural spanking has no long-term positive benefit. That's kind of weird, isn't it? But biblical chastisement molds a lifelong character. Cultural spanking is used by most Christians. Biblical chastisement is rarely used by anyone. So there's a list. You're not going to memorize that. You can replay um, the video and try to go back to it. It's, it has no scripture in it, and yet when you go back to each one of these, you can realize why you're doing what you're doing, and you put God into this picture, why he spanks us, and you'll recognize every single one of those things is true. As he works to create Christ-likeness in us as believers. Now, your children are not born believers. Sorry, try to clarify that recently, in recent messages. They're not born um, perfectly innocent and the world corrupts them, or schools, or parents. They're born with a sin nature. And at some point in time, they understand enough that they can make a decision to receive or to reject Jesus Christ. And that takes a while. So in the meantime, you're trying to work with them more in the moral character control area rather than working on their new nature. And so it just has a difference there. I just want to clarify that. Part of what I left out last week but, but to recognize what's going on. As we go into this passage, uh, we go with a little bit of review and a little bit of background. Isaac was born and weaned in chapter 21, verses 1 to 8. Weaning at that, that time was about age 3, 4, somewhere in there. What's weaning in our day? If parents even, or mother even nurses at all. They might make it to about 6 months. Some might make it to 1. Some have many excuses and lots of pressure on them from society. It's not what they did. So here he's worked with Isaac. He's born and weaned in 1 to 8 of chapter 21. Ishmael is sent away in verses 9 to 21 in that same chapter. That's a very difficult thing in Abraham's life. Abraham continued to sojourn with the land in the land of the Philistines in Beersheba, which simply means well of seven. They, they had seven ewe lambs that were taken. They formed a covenant between him and Abimelech. And to make things a little better. So when you go into this chapter and you get back to the end in verse 19, it, it acts like he just moved to Beersheba. In reality, he went back home. And so that'll make sense as we go through here. But look what God does in his life and picture what's going on here between a father and a son. This is what you're after. 
Isaac was not a normal um, son who'd been left to himself. Notice the son as we go through the passage. His dad had to have directed him, probably spanked him. I don't want to guarantee that. Some of us were perfect children. We never needed a spanking. Hands. Ah, there are a few out here that are cooperative, compliant. Not that you never needed one, but maybe they never caught you when you really needed. But I always felt like that. I was very compliant, and I feared my father greatly, as I told you all. But when you come into this chapter, look what God is doing, and you say, well, this has nothing to do with children. It has everything to do with children. Verse 1, now it came about after these things, what I just listed for you in chapter 21. Isaac born and weaned, Ishmael sent away. Abraham is sojourning and has set up a covenant with Abimelech so he could stay in the land of the Philistines. It came about after these things that God tested Abraham. Don't you love that? Don't you love it when you wake up one day and you realize because this, 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 and this went wrong, within the first hour of your eyes opening, you're saying something's happening here. God is testing me somehow, because bam, 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 hardly get to breathe, kind of like Job in Job 1 and 2. You barely get the news, and wham, you get the news, and wham, you get the news. And then your wife tells you to curse God and die. Not a good day. But God tests Abraham. Who does God choose to test? Not just anyone. His children, specifically, and even with Job, as I mentioned him a moment ago, he gears the test for your abilities. You're, you're going to do this with your children. Hmm, never thought about that. Don't you test them? Don't, don't you give them an opportunity to prove themselves, to, to reveal who they really are? If you don't, you're not releasing them, which is what I want to focus on here. They're born, they're given to you on loan from God temporarily, and he says, here, do something with this thing. That's what you feel like, right? Not the first couple days. Maybe not the first couple weeks. But it doesn't take very long to realize, yep, they have a sin nature. They could care less about me. They keep me up all night without even any feeling anything bad. And so here he is. He's moving in on Abraham with an appropriate test for a man who's got a final lesson to learn because he gets brought out in the New Testament. God tested Abraham. He proved him as kind of the idea behind this. Puts him to the test. And he says to Abraham, calls out to him, Abraham, verbal. And he says, here, here I am. And God again says to him, command, number one, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, in case he thought it might be Ishmael, and go to the land of Moriah, command number two, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Normal day. When's the last time God told you to do something like that? Don't answer that question. You may try to use that in a court of law. Only reason I shot them, my child, is because God told me to. They were so wild, so out of control. I shouldn't go down that road. That's not normal. But, but you have that feeling. If you're honest, you will say that. If I have a child who's not compliant like Steve, there's days, there's days you want to hurt them. You won't admit anything. You guys are just clammed up today. I don't want to get any heads going up and down. John's on guard this weekend, and so I don't even get an amen. I'm, I'm really struggling with the whole thing. But he gives him three commands, and you can imagine how this settled in. Here's the father 
being told to take the son, the promised one, the one that had come along. Remember what all God had done with Abraham? Leave your family, your country. Move. Gone. Leave Lot. Separate. Gone. Leave Ishmael. Kick him out. Gone. And now he gets down to a fourth one and he says, and by the way, I want you also to leave Isaac. But this time, by killing him. Not just killing him, but making him a burnt offering. Can you imagine what the picture of that from a father's standpoint here? God is telling Abraham, give Isaac back to me. That is the ultimate release that God is looking for. That is what I had learned earlier and I shared with you. As I went home, God had taught me by having to learn to let go of the wife I thought I was marrying, only to have some um, confusion on my part, and I thought we were breaking up. And so I went to God, and I let go. And I was taught at that time, hold on to everything loosely. And so I literally, I'm not a demonstrative kind of person, but I literally held my hand up and I pictured my thought wife-to-be, we weren't engaged yet, and in my hand, and held her up and gave her to God. And basically told him, if that's what you want, I trust you. What did he do with her? He gave her back. So I gave her away again, and he gave her back, and I gave her, no. God provided my needs. Sorry, I couldn't, I couldn't help it. Oh, thank you very much. This is, this is quite different. God didn't ask me to offer my wife up as a burnt offering. But the, the first two are just cal- imper- uh, imperatives. They're just general commands. Take your son, go to the land of Moriah, and then he puts it in a hill. Cause him to be offered up as a burnt offering. He makes it a strong statement there. Where is the land of Moriah? It's only used two times in the Bible. Here and for those of you who read ahead. Nobody read ahead? You guys didn't have Friday night and it left you off the hook. You have cross-references? You see, I don't want to give everything to my children. I want them to learn as I am like a father. Okay, Palestine's really big. Specifically, where is it found? Where is Moriah? Second Chronicles 3.1, what does it tell you about Moriah? When you guys do your reading, I'm going to add another layer to it. You can read the passage we're going to study, then I want you to start looking up a few things on your own. Just a few. I'm not going to put a lot of pressure on you. Check, it's right at Jerusalem. Not the Temple Mount, but in the city of David. Mount Moriah is where the temple was built in the city of David, which literally and biblically is just south of the Temple Mount. They're, they've taught you, and I'm not going to go into the long ways, they've taught you, so many people have taught you that the Temple Mount was the city of David. It makes no sense biblically or archaeologically or militarily because that's where the Roman army, the 10th Legion, set up their camp. That's what's up there. And it looked down on the temple, which was in the city of David, just south. So when you go to 2 Chronicles chapter 3 and verse 1, he mentions this word one more time. And look what he says in relation to it. Then Solomon, in verse 1, began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David, at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. 
That's the only other place it shows up. You don't build a threshing floor on a peak of a hard rock mountain, which is what's on the Temple Mount. They think the temple was right on top of that. If you go in there and look at what was there, they have pictures, um, drawings, I should say, maybe paintings even, of what was there before the um, Muslims built their, their temple. And so the, um, the, the idea here is that's, that's not a threshing floor there. That would not work as well at all. But if when you go down and you look at the city of David, where the spring, uh, the Gihon Spring is located, where there was water necessary, where right now today they're excavating and finding the temple. That was torn down to the last stone and thrown down the hillside into the Kidron Valley, as we talked about in Sunday school this morning. So as he's looking at this, Abraham knows nothing about this. How does Abraham even know where to go? Is God speaking to him along the way? Because it says here in these commands, to one of the mountains of which I will tell you. The implication here is that God's going to continue leading him. What do you need as a father over your children? Constant guidance from, from God. This is what we've been talking about in recent weeks. This is where you realize children are a gift from the Lord. It's a man who walks in his integrity that God can bless in Proverbs 20, verse 7. It's you. You are the key to becoming the leader that your children can imitate and follow after. You show them Christ-likeness. This is what Abraham's doing here. How important was Isaac in his life? Extremely important. If you go back and read, the, or read all that happened, Abraham initially thought it was Eliezer that he was going to have a child by. Or at least he's going to turn everything over, not a child by, but turn, him all, turn everything over to him as the representative, as the heir to his estate. God said no. So then Abraham comes up with a brainy idea, and his wife, works, Sarah, works with it. He said, well, go into my handmaid, Hagar. So they had a son, Ishmael. Where's Ishmael today? If you go and look at Ishmael, you realize they're connected with the Midianites. You go check out the Midianites, you realize they're down in Saudi Arabia. The very northern part of Saudi Arabia, that's the, that's the Ishmaelites down there. And you see all the struggles that they have, ultimately comes from the Ishmaelites, comes from uh, Edomites, which were um, Esau's descendants, the other son of Isaac, ultimately. Then you get down to the um, problem with Lot. He has uh, two children by, by way of his daughter, their daughter or his daughters, and they're the Moabites and the Ammonites. And when you look on a map and you realize Edomites, Moabites, Ammonites, Ishmaelites, they're all those eastern countries to Israel. Then none of them should have been there. Well, Edom, Ishmael could have been. But there's problems because of sin going on all the time in people's lives. And he tells him to go to that land. He's sending him back to the very place where David's going to build the temple, where they're going to worship, where ultimately Jesus Christ is going to come down, his feet touch on the Mount of Olives, and he's going to enter into the temple. It's not up on the mount. It's down where the temple is located. What's the big deal? Because God's trying to say something here. He starts with this sacrifice of his own son. In, in beginning this whole relationship between Abraham, the father of the Hebrews, who would ultimately have a great nation and God's promises would be fulfilled through. But it's Isaac. It's this one son. It's the one that Abraham had waited and waited and waited. How much older is Ishmael than Isaac? Thirteen years. 
Read your Bibles. Never trust the pastor. you got to check these things out. Don't wait on me to know everything and tell you what it is, because I'll never know everything. Close, right, Fred? Yeah, okay. But I'll never know everything. But you don't want that. Same thing with your father. Your father, you may look up to him in so many ways, which I did with my father. My dad knew everything until I got to be a teenager. Then somehow he started forgetting things. No, I had great respect for my dad. Okay, he's around 13... 14, put it in that time frame. And so as you're, as you're looking at this, Abraham had waited a long time for this son. How old is, is Isaac now? Look what he says here in verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him. How old do you think those guys are? What's a young man? 20, later teens. And Isaac, his son, and he split wood for the offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And when you get down a little bit further, in verse 5, he says, I am the lad will go yonder. You know what the term lad is? It's the same term used for young men. How old's Isaac? When he uses this term for Ishmael, back in chapter 21, in verse 12, Isaac is about 17. So it's been 13 years waiting for him after Ishmael. Waiting till they could not have children, till it was humanly impossible, and God said, now. That's how God works. We love that about him, don't we? Not. Why does he wait to the last minute? He doesn't. We're the ones who wait to the last minute to get into his word to understand. People come to me over the years and they ask me, what is, I need to know what God's will is in this area of my life. And I said, that's in the Bible. How much time are you spending reading the Bible? None then why would you think I'm just going to tell you? I don't know what God's will is for your life. He will lead you into what your will, his will is for you. You need to get into the word. I'm going to die one of these days, and I want ringing. In fact, maybe I should put it on my tomb, my, my tombstone. Read your Bibles. <laughs> Except you're all going to die before me. God won't let me go. I've told you that for years. So I'll put it on your tombs, tombstones. But as, but as he's struggling here, it's, it's these young men, two young men, older teenagers, 20-year-olds, and Isaac, his son, which again, we're assuming he's about the same age, and he split wood for the burnt offerings. This is what Abraham's doing. Rises, saddles, takes two young men, splits wood, arose and went to the place, Mount Moriah, of which God had told him. Must have given him really good directions, or God's speaking to him along the way. Or it was so distinctive from the angle he was coming in that Abraham would see it. I don't know, but he says in verse 4, On the third day Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. And Abraham said to his young men, Command, stay here with the donkey. Why only one donkey? Because the other three are young men. They don't have any problem walking. The donkey's carrying the load, including Abraham. Because he's old man. But he says, stay here with the donkey. Literally, the idea that he's trying to zero in on is to dwell here. Remain. Wait. He didn't tell him how long. It may have been days. And he says, I and the lad, this young man, will go yonder and we will worship and we will return to you. The worship is bowing down, prostrating oneself, doing homage, submitting to the will of God. 
And this word typically ties in with the idea of done before a superior or a ruler. So when you worship, you're bowing down and you're looking up to them because they're superior to you. This is what he's focusing in on. The land of Moriah, about 40 miles away, if you just take a ruler. I don't know how far it would have been actually traveling. But he says here, we're going to go farther and, and um, worship him. This is what he's zeroing in on, on their life. This is pretty amazing. But he says we're going to come back again. What is that demonstrating on Abraham's part? Faith. Faith. Look at Hebrews 11. You turn with me for a second there. Hebrews is in the New Testament. Some of you may not know that. Other of you ought to have it memorized by now. Hebrews eleven seventeen. He says, by faith, this is a chapter on faith in Hebrews 11, verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. Sound familiar? It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. Well, God, how can, they have, how can he have descendants if he's dead while still a teenager? Verse 19, he considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. That's interesting, isn't it? What did Abraham believe? That God is capable of resurrecting him. God knew what his promise was. If, if I'm going to kill him here, God's going to have to resurrect him in order for him to, to fulfill the promises. God cannot lie. How do I know that? Ah, Good start. Bible says so. Where in the New Testament does it tell me that God cannot lie? Hebrews 6, you just back up a little bit. He says in verse 18, and this is a conjunction with God establishing a covenant. He says, in order that by two unchangeable things, God's word and God's oath, his spoken word and what he promises to do, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have Strong encouragement. We who have fled for refuge in the laying hold of the hope set before us. He also tells us in Titus, Titus chapter 1, in verse 2. And it's interesting that Paul would start off this way. But he says, In the hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago. Are you believing as a, as a Christian today, are you really believing that God is going to redeem you one day? Your body. We're redeemed spiritually. We're justified spiritually at the time that we receive Christ. We're being sanctified in our souls, our mind, our will, our emotions. As we walk with him, we become more and more like Christ. But one day, ultimately, God will redeem us. And what you find today, and I know there was a get-together yesterday, and I was in bed at part of that, um, sleeping away, I mean Friday, but, but the voice of the martyrs, and you realize there's a lot going on in the world. There's a lot of struggle going on. But when it comes here, which is coming, some of you I know don't like the news and don't want to watch the news. But don't be surprised when the persecution arises. They're trying everything they can to shut down freedom. And the ultimate freedom is found in Jesus Christ. They don't want that. So persecution will come. And when we're under the middle of that or in the middle of that, we're going to say to God, I trust you. I believe your promises. You will take care of me. You will never leave me or forsake me. You love me. You've promised me eternal life. Not in this body, but in the new body to come. 
So as, as you're wrestling through this thing and you're looking at it, it's, it's something that you as a parent, and specifically a father, need to address in your life and realize it's what you need to pass on to your children, that they can trust God. And the best way to do that is by setting an example. What do you do? Everything goes wrong? Trust God. I get tempted just like you do. I'm watching the news at times and different things, and, and I'm realizing, man, this, I knew it was going to be bad, but now I'm watching it be bad. And my tendency is to get a little bit angry. There's that word. Righteous anger is what I like to call it. I want to go clean out the temple. But that's not what God's called me to do. And so instead of channeling that that frustration or that news that I've received toward anger, I need to channel it toward prayer. I need to teach those around me, and I've tried to teach you that for years. God's in control. Persecution is normal. It's been normal. The church has been tribulating for 2,000 years because Jesus said, in the world you shall have tribulation. They've been squeezed and pressured in, compressed with all the trials and persecution. It just hasn't come to the United States except in our forefathers who fled persecution to come here. And then England tried to come back and take it over as well. Right or wrong, we have freedom today that is being taken away. And so what do I teach my children when we run into that? Fight? Get a gun? Is that what Jesus did? He prayed. He witnessed. He told them, don't worry about those who kill the body. Worry about those who can kill the soul. And these are things that we teach to our children. What I wanted with my children was for them to be able to stand on my shoulders and do far more than what I did. None of them chose to go into the ministry. None of them married somebody going into the ministry. Is that the end of the world? No. It's just who do I give all my books to? So you want to put them in their garage. But, but it's, a, it's a desire, but whatever they're in, they're in ministry, and they need to be using that opportunity to share. And so here's Abraham teaching Isaac how to trust God. When's the last time you tied your child up and put them up on a, a, a pile of uh, sticks and raised a knife above them? What do you think they would say to you? May I appeal? I got new information here. I've read the New Testament. This isn't how it's supposed to go. But what's interesting to me is God didn't reach out and grab Abraham's arm. He simply called to him. What do you think Abraham was doing with that knife in the ear? Come on, God. Come on. Now. Tell me now what else you want me to do. You surely don't want me to act like the, the, the heathens around us who sacrifice their children. That can't be what you're wanting me to do. And yet one day down the road, that's exactly what God would do with his own son. He would go to the cross in full view of his father, in full view of the the power of the angels around him, and every ability to stop it, and yet let it go. This is the area of release that we need to have with our children. We won't even let them ride their bike out on the street as I talked about with that 13-year-old. 
They went wild. Once she got free, she went wild. Your whole thing is you're letting them go, you're letting them go, you're letting them go. You're giving them more and more biblical freedom so that your goal is that they independently walk with God. They don't need you anymore. They'll come back to you whenever they need money or something like that. No, if, if you love them and they love you, you're not, you're not, they're not going to stay away. It's, it's going to hurt them to not be there. It's going to hurt you for them not to be there. That, that's a normal thing. But the question here is who's first in your life? As God's talking to Abraham, is it me or is it your son? And Abraham made it really clear, didn't he? And so as he goes down through here, he tells him, we will worship and we will return to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son, old enough to carry whatever amount of wood that was. He took in his hand the fire or, and, the, and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. What does that tell you about Isaac? He's obeying. He's cooperating. He's not complaining. You don't see any of that going on here. Abraham must have raised him already to a certain point where he definitely respected his father. But then you see the next layer. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father! He's kind of moseying along, heading toward this mountain that's in the distance. My father! And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, I see this. I'm, I'm noticing these things around me here. The fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And if this was a movie they were making, what would be coming out of Abraham's eyes? Tears. You think he wanted to do this? You think when God spoke to him and told him to go do this, that Abraham said, oh, I got nothing going on next week. That'd be great. A little road trip with the boy, maybe camping. No, that isn't what he's asking him to do. He's laying this out very clearly, but what does it tell you about Isaac? He's, he's attentive. He's what? He trusts his dad because you're going to see it more and more as this goes on. But he's observing. That's the word I'm looking for. And, okay, he's thinking, he's processing, he's working with his dad here. He isn't independently kind of going, oh, man, when this is going to get over? I got a video game to get back to. <laughs> dad, we had a baseball game. You interrupted it for this trip. None of that. You see a son who's very respectful of his father. And there's a mutual respect. Because his father didn't tell him to be quiet or stronger terms. Why do you ask so many questions? The too often comes from parents. That's exactly what you want out of your children, is respectful questions about everything. You want to be able to talk and be real. Well, the way you get your children to be honest with you is you're honest with them. Are you getting a picture of what I've been trying to teach for the last few weeks? We all think it's this mechanical thing. It's like magic. You set down laws, and when they break them, you spank them, and they're going to come out just fine. It's the other way around. All of Scripture puts the focus on the parent not to exasperate their children. The parent to walk in their integrity. The parent to guide and to be the leader of the home. And this is what's being brought out even in this story. And so again, Abraham says to him in verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. How did he know that? He knew God. See, when you read the scriptures and you realize that God cannot lie, then you realize everything he's ever said in there is all going to come true. Half of the prophecy in scripture has been fulfilled, roughly. 
depending on who you talk to, a fourth to a third of the Bible is prophetic. And about half of that, an eighth to a sixth of the Bible, prophecies have already been fulfilled. When people go into prophecy, they neglect the Old Testament. A lot of the Old Testament prophets have yet to be fulfilled. When you go into the book of Revelation, you will not understand the book of Revelation unless you read the prophets in the Old Testament. Although the focus of the book of Revelation is on Jesus Christ, not telling you every last thing that's going to happen, bad things are going to happen. So many people don't want to read the book. Well, then you don't want to know about Jesus. We are not to be scared when we read Scripture. We're not to be scared when we face prosecution or persecution. We're not to be scared when we have this unknown out there, when they take away your bank accounts, when you have nothing financially to depend on. That is when we really begin to live. I got kicked out of a church one day in the years past. One of the hardest and yet one of the best things that ever happened to me. And somebody had the gall, which what I felt like at the time, to tell me, yep, when we were broke, that's when we really learned to depend on God. This is somebody from the church that was kicking me out. And I said, what? You know I'm going to struggle. You, you know I don't have anything to live on. Oh, we'll give you your one week's vacation because you've worked almost half a year, so we'll give you one week. So I had a response. I, I had a decision. I had to respond to that. And ultimately, I had to look to God and say, God, what's this all about? This church is part of the product. I didn't start another one, but we came back after being gone for a little while because I had to go work to a, to a group that started in homes, and I call those our chaotic years. Dogs and telephones and all kinds of distractions. But I learned from that. I watched God teach me things I never would have learned any other way. I was taught even the whole pre-wrath position that we teach here by somebody because of that that I came across and was interacting with. But God was in control and I could trust him. And now I look back on it, I tell people that was one of the most, the most um, impactful times in my life. Emotional, hard, difficult, especially when people tell you to get lost and they get mad at you for not moving away. And I told him I tried. I tried for two years and God said, nope, 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 nope. Here I am, 30 years later. God's doing the same thing in your lives. He's in control. And he's working in us to make us more like his son, to cause us to trust him. This test was obvious. And he brings him up to this altar that he's going to um, build, and it repeats the phrase, so the two of them walked on together. Now Isaac's starting to ask questions. Now he's starting to wonder what's going on. But his father assures him, not because he knows the future, but because he knows the God of the future. And he recognized that God would never let him kill his own son. What, is, what does the Bible call that? Murder. And what, was, what were they doing to Moloch and some of the other gods around them? Offering their babies in horrendous ways. And he saw and he knew how bad that was. And so here he is trying to present this. And the, so the test was laid. Now comes the struggle. He says, they came to the place Mount Moriah, of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there. He constructed something. More likely, there's only three types of altars in the Bible. One is out of earth. Could have done it that way. Just some kind of raised area. But they'd have to rebuild those and rebuild those as you went through the rainy seasons and everything 
had to start over. Another one was to have a bronze altar, which came later. But the normal one, most common one, was to have a stone altar. So he says here, he built this altar, probably out of stone. And it's, it's literally, the term he's using here for altar is a slaughter place. Isaac's still sitting there. With the, is he helping him? Who built the altar? Abraham, why isn't his son helping? Maybe Abraham wanted to do it himself. Maybe Isaac's bringing him rocks, and Abraham's actually constructing or fashioning how it's going to be. These are kind of general, but he builds this altar, and when that part is finished, he arranges the wood, implying that there's enough of it. If you ever try to burn a body, you need a lot of wood. And then comes the critical part. It says he bound his son Isaac. He tied him up. What has now been removed from Isaac? Any doubts whatsoever are gone. Dad, what is Isaac not doing to his old father? Resisting. Why would he tie him up? Because when you go back and look at the sacrifices, that's what they did with the sacrifice. Tied him up. For the sacrifice, typically, of an animal is because they wouldn't want him to run away. Is Isaac going to run away? Is Isaac going to react to his dad when he raises the knife up and he's going to come down? What would you do? Yeah, I would get my attention. If I trusted my dad, I'd have to close my eyes. Kind of like you do with the dentist. But here he is binding his own son. He ties him up and laid him on top of the wood. Now Isaac's looking at this and he's going, now I know what I am. Now I know why I'm here. Now I know why you left the other two young men far enough away that they would not see us doing this. What do you also see in Isaac here? There's courage, submission, obedience, and ultimately faith. Who's he trusting? His dad. Now again, I don't want to go back to guilt trips because none of us are perfect parents. And I have um, sworn my children to secrecy at the loss of their inheritance. If they ever tell you what really happened in our house. Just kidding. They can tell you whatever. You can ask them whatever questions you want. But I'm going to tell you it's a lie and deny it. But as you're looking at this, we're not perfect. Our children, how well can they trust us? You ever let them down? You ever not keep a promise? Or worse yet, purposely violated the promise because it was to your advantage? This is fascinating about what impact Abraham had had on Isaac. And Isaac has only had 17, 18 years. But here's verse 10, Abraham stretches out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. That is impressive. That is amazing as far as where Abraham's at. And he says in verse 11, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven. What do we have here? An audible crying out from heaven itself. And it's the angel of the Lord, and we understand that word, the messenger of Yahweh, is how you could translate that. And it literally refers to... Come on, this is how you learn. You, you, you guess and you guess wrong, and you'll never forget you guess wrong in front of 100 people. 
That's how you learn. I encourage you to venture out and just take, take a risk. Okay, I got six of them, but Linda? Okay, pre-incarnate Christ is kind of the idea of what's being brought out here. We can go to numerous passages which make this even clearer that this is exactly what's going on at this point in time. In Acts 7, 30 to 32, with Stephen speaking, it, he calls the, the angel of the Lord God in Acts 7, 30 to 32. So as we look at this picture, it's the same angel of the Lord that came to Hagar. When you go back in Genesis 21, that previous chapter, the context is always critical for us to take in. When you go back to chapter 21, and you read in verse 17, God heard the lad crying, and the angel of God, same picture here, called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what is the matter with you, Hagar? God initiates that relationship. God is initiating this one with Abraham. He cries out to him. This whole idea of what he's using to, to call out is to cry out or proclaim to Abraham from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Was that strong enough? Abraham, Abraham. And he's going, yes, yes, that's what I've been waiting for. I'm not shocked that God's talking to me because he talks to me a lot. But now he's crying out to me right before I'm doing what is horrendous in my eyes. But I'm obeying. And Abraham said, here I am. And the angel of the Lord said to him, do not stretch out your hand against the lad or the young man. And do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God. And you're going, oh. This is what they put in movies. You know, all right, at the last second, they did rescue somebody. They do it all the time. Most of them are so phony, you can't believe it. This one's real. Now I know. It's a very specific term. It's um, yada, where we get the idea of gnosko, to know experientially, to recognize in a practical realm. You can say all the things. You can be like Peter and say, I will never deny you. How did that work out for Peter? What was the gnosko or the experiential knowledge regarding that? He blew it three times. So God didn't have anybody else ask him after that. Here's Abraham waiting for these words. And God simply says, now I know that you fear God. You revere, you stand in awe. You are submissive to your creator. Since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me, the son of promise, the one that you had all your hopes based on, the one who was going to be like the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky. I now know. So when we run into trials and God brings a bunch of things and it's the most important appointment in your life and you're driving to Bend and you get a flat tire, and you go, oh, I left myself a few minutes to get to that appointment. So I pull the other, the spare out, and what is it? Flat. Because you haven't used it for three years, and you never check it. Only type A's do that. <laughs> then how do you respond? And then finally you... Okay, crying's in there somewhere. But, but ultimately you pray, don't you? And what's your prayer sound like? God, what's wrong with you? Is that what it sounds like? Or do you simply say, God, I need help. You want me at the appointment? You got to bring somebody along here. 
And what happens sometimes when you do that? Your best friend drives up, says, hey, what's going on? I got a flat, but I need a ride more than I need my flat fixed. And your best friend gives you a ride to the appointment, turns around, goes back to your car, gets the, or maybe takes it with him in the first place, goes and gets both tires fixed, brings them back, fixes your car, and then goes and picks you up because it was an hour and a half appointment. That's what friends do. That's what a friend is when you're a good Samaritan. Where were they going when they stopped? Doesn't matter as much. This is what Christ wants, to be, wants us to be showing. He wants us as parents to be demonstrating to our children what real love is, what sacrificial devotion to other people really is. It is so blurred today, people don't know what it means. He makes it really clear, I know you fear me. So how did Abraham do on the test? You go over to James chapter 2, right after Hebrews. Start in verse 20, just to get a little bit of the context. James 2.20. I'm glad some of you still have Bibles that turn pages, because that lets me know when you made it. Those electronic devices, I don't know. I told you, they need the page, the sound coming out of them like they're turning pages. Verse 20, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Abraham has faith. How do you know? He practiced it. Look at verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works, not by faith alone. Luther had a problem with this. He did not like the book of James. He called James a right straw epistle. He struggled with it because Romans said, you're saved by faith alone. Well, what is faith without works? It isn't real. He's not saying you're not saved by faith. He's saying if it's genuine faith, it's going to show. It's, it's going to stand out. It, when it's tested, it'll be revealed. There it is. My faith that's inside of me is now coming outside of me because of the test. How many of you are sitting here today who are willing to say, God, I want want a test this week? Well, he'll bring them when it's appropriate, but, but how many of us are like Isaac where we say, I trust you. I'll obey you. All I ask, and this is what I would say to God if I was going to do that, all I ask is when the test comes that an angel shows up with a big sign saying, this is a test. (laughs) Not of the emergency broadcast system, but this is a test of your faith. I go, okay, okay, I'm I'm going to change moods here and positions, and I'm going to relax. Why don't I do it anyway? Because I'm still immature I still don't know if, it, and it's, so it's, it's all God's fault, right? Because God hasn't been the perfect parent. He hasn't been the perfect heavenly father to me. And so he's, he's given me reasons sometimes where he, he didn't keep a promise or he didn't show up when he told me what or whatever it might be. And, and so I don't know if I can trust him. Is that the problem? Never. What's the problem? I don't know him very well. How can I change that? 
Read your, you're all going to see a tombstone now when you think of that. Read your Bibles. This isn't just for pastors. I never wanted to be a pastor. I've told you that many times. I went to Bible college because I wanted to learn the Bible. When they asked for someone to take a step forward, I didn't move. Everybody else took one step back. You're picking up on it. Review is always good. But here I am. I don't like being up front. I told my wife again this morning, I don't want to preach today. This is a big responsibility. James 3, I'm going to give an account. I don't want to mishandle anything. I don't want to make a mistake. But it's the exact same thing going on with you as parents. We all want to, we kind of throw it out and say, I don't want to be a parent today. I'm going to make a mistake. Especially the first day. I'm going to break them. Children are really, really pliable. Don't abuse that, but God knew what he was doing. Their bones are like rubber. It's their heart that has the problem. And so it's a, it's a gift, as, as we talked about, going back to Psalm 127. God has given us a gift, this precious opportunity for us to make a difference in the life of another. The closest discipleship relationship we're going to have next to our spouse. So we have a privilege there. The problem is, I want it to be a part-time job. I don't want my kids interrupting me. I don't want them having all these ball games that I have to go to or, or break their arm and now I've got to go. I still remember, no, I shouldn't share that. But it's a situation with reaction when something happened and my brother and I were sword fighting and he, my brother, I won. My brother had to go to the emergency room to have a chunk of wood removed. My dad was not a happy person. It was bedtime. We were only going to the garage to put our dirty clothes in the laundry. But there were these perfect swords slaying there. What do you expect two nine and seven-year-olds to do? I took advantage of my bigger size and older age. Wasn't a good picture right after that. But anyway, there's stuff like that that happens in our lives. And Abraham's faith was demonstrated by the test. God is going to test us. He's going to test us with our children. He's going to test us sometimes when they don't come home. And your tendency is to say, God, I gave them a little bit. I let them go around the the parking or the um, driveway out front. And then I let them actually go out on the street around the corner. And then then they ultimately rode their bikes down to the store. They were gone for 30 minutes with money. We weren't even there. We didn't know what they bought. We told them what they could buy, but they're on these busy roads as much as Pengra can be busy back in the day. There was no traffic here 35 years ago, 30 years ago, when the kids were old enough to do that. But you let go, and you let go, and then all of a sudden one night before cell phones, somebody didn't show up. First thing you do is make plans to eliminate the boy. Because it was a church activity. It wasn't even a date, maybe, but he didn't get him back on time. He's dead. (laughs) He's going to be a living sacrifice. I go get my shotgun, make sure it doesn't have any shells or anything in it. But when he gets to the front door, here's this click. And he tries to drop her off and run. And I come out to the door and say, you, up front. That didn't really happen very often. But once in a while, they, they wouldn't show up. And your first thought is, is, who do you blame it on? Besides the boy, if they're even with a boy. 
You blame it on God. God, what have you done with my child? And you almost hear this audible voice. Excuse me? I should be asking you that question. What have you done with my child, says God? Remember they were on loan, they're temporary, you're going to give an account for what you've done with them, and you need to set an example, and you're not going to be perfect until you receive a new body. So I'm not expecting perfection out of you, but I'm expecting obedience. I'm expecting cooperation. I'm expecting you to to do what I'm telling you to do. So here's Abraham. He builds this altar. He puts Isaac on it, and God calls out to him. And he tells him not to kill the child. In verse 13, Abraham raised his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket. I, thought, I think that's fascinating. It's, it's behind him. It's like God brings this ram up quietly and sticks it in the thicket somehow. And, and it's like, God knows what he's doing. You can trust him. How long had it been there? I don't know. Abraham may have been so focused on what he's doing, he didn't even notice. How often do you see a ram stuck in a thicket? Not very often, if ever. When are you going to see a ram stuck in a thicket? When you need one. God isn't, you know, you won't go home today and find a ram stuck in a thicket in your front yard. If you did, you'd probably go, oh, no. (laughs) But if God did that every single day, you know, here's an elk or a a deer or something out there. Hopefully it's a little one. But but they're they're stuck in some way, and you're kind of going, why do I need this? What is it doing in my yard? It's out of season. Bring the pot blessing. But God is trying to work in us to get our attention and to remind us of what's going on here. So Abraham went and took the ram. It's like, where, where are the instructions for this? Does Abraham have to think twice about it? What did he tell Isaac earlier? God will provide the lamb for the sacrifice. There it is. Abraham knew God was going to do that because he had a a genuine faith. And he offered up the ram for a burnt offering in the place of, as a substitute or in exchange for his son. Can you imagine Isaac's relief? His dad unties him and he ties up the ram. And Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. That's what I need as a father. That's what you need as mothers, as parents. Literally this word, the Lord will provide, is the Lord will appear. He will take regard or take note of. He'll look on you with pleasure. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. It became a regular fixed thing. Abraham and Isaac would look back to that day and say, God did that. He can do it again. But for Isaac to learn that lesson, what did he have to do to Abraham? Take him to the edge. And we as parents don't like that. But the better we get to know God, the better we know his word, the more quickly we can turn to something in Scripture and realize this is true, that I can depend on it. The quicker you get to the triumph that the last part is here. He was tested, he trusted, and then the triumph. Verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time. Abraham knew that voice. But he calls to Abraham from heaven. And he said to him, By myself I have sworn. 
I've taken an oath, I have promised, declares the Lord, or Yahweh, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, because you put me number one and Isaac number two. He says, I will greatly bless you. He says, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. A minute ago, you didn't think there'd be any seed. At least you started wondering. He says, and your seed shall possess the gate of your enemies. This is carrying the idea to inherit or to take ownership, to rule over the authority of your enemies. People were probably praying that for Washington, D.C. right now. But in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Why? Repeats it. Because you have obeyed my voice. That's all God's looking for. That's all a parent is looking for with their children. But to do that, you need to be clear to your children. What is it you're asking them to do? They should find us on a regular basis reading our Bibles. My children saw me on a regular basis preaching. That's easy. But taking it in on my free time and then living it out or bringing it up, or as I told you, find some times to pray when it's totally out of the blue. If you're driving down the road, keep your eyes open. But, but pray wherever you're at. Pray in the garage. Pray in the backyard. Pray when you get in the church parking lot. Pray when you get out of church here today. And just thank God. Make prayer a habit of your life, and guess what your children will do? Make trust a habit of your life, and guess what your children will do? This is how you can release them. Because you're releasing them to the one who cares more about them than you ever will. You're releasing them to the one who owns them. Remember, they're on loan. They aren't yours. So what did Abraham do here? He returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. Back to the end of chapter 21 where he lived. You look at Beersheba, and you realize the Philistines had come way in on what today is Israeli territory. But back then, they controlled all that. And he lived there. He dwelt there. But Mark, or Matthew 10, I close off with this last verse. Matthew 10, verse 37. Again, a reminder to leave with and to keep forefront in our minds. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Matthew 10, 37. Second part. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You've got to let go of your children. We've got to trust God that he's going to do what's best. I have two of them in law enforcement right now, and anytime you get on the highway and you hear of a wreck, the first thing you think of is of somebody I know. Could happen any day. And so what are we learning to do? Trust God. then I can let go of my children, and I won't worry about them. Walk with God, set an example, and I can let go of my children. I won't worry about them. But I have responsibilities as God's steward, sometimes to bring in even a spanking. As I shared with you earlier, it is different than what the world's doing today. The reason the world has turned away from spanking is because it became abuse. They never saw any advantage to it. And if you spank your children, guess what, what happens to you? You at times deserve a spanking, and you don't enjoy that. So if you don't spank, nobody else can spank. Look what they're doing in our court system today. 
Ecclesiastes says, when the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, the heart is given over to do evil. And you're seeing it skyrocket in America because they're not dealing with it. You can fix that in your home with your child with genuine love where you're laying down your life for them because of God's will and because of your love for them. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the, just the story in Genesis that's often just about Abraham and a, a great test, but it's really what you're doing in our lives every day. Maybe not to that level, but you're constantly trying to get our attention. We need to trust you. We need to go to you first when something goes wrong really bad. We need to cry out to you for wisdom, for guidance, for help in processing whatever the catastrophe may be. And when it comes to persecution, Father, help us to cry out to you that we would have an impact on our persecutors, that we'd care more about them than we do about ourselves. And that when they see Christ in us, some of them may turn and believe. But help us to trust you with the test. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.